0: If you will turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this morning's sermon is entitled Seasons and Times. Our key words for our worshipers in training are time, eternity, and sovereign. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. I want to read the entire passage as we begin this morning. Well Let's begin Ecclesiastes chapter 3 in verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up is planted. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, what has been driven away. Now, those of you who were hippies in the 1960s know that Solomon wrote the lyrics to a number one hit on the Billboard charts. Pete Seeger put chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, to music in 1959, and it became popular in 1965 when it was covered by the band The Birds. They titled it, Turn, Turn, Turn. I'm sure most of you know that song. Well, unfortunately, Pete Seeger's addition of the words, turn, 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 and the last six words of the song, I swear it's not too late. He sang a time for peace at the end of verse 8, and then he said, I swear it's not too late. Unfortunately, this turned Solomon's beautiful poem about an eternally sovereign God into a rally cry for Vietnam War protesters who thought that absolute peace was actually possible in a fallen and sinful world. So most people come to Solomon's word here and see this as marching orders. That mankind, as time turns and as the seasons change, this is what we are to look to If we could all just put flowers in our hair and sit in a circle and do aromatherapy and share our stories, then everyone's going to be happy and everything's going to work out fine. Now, if you've lived for 10 minutes in this world, you know that this is not true. And Solomon has made it infinitely clear to us in the first two chapters. We considered last week that all will die. Without exception, you and I are going to die. And meanwhile, we live in this seeming rat race, this daily cycle of getting up, brushing our teeth, going to work, doing our job, going to lunch, coming back, fighting the sleep monster, finishing our job for the day, riding home, getting our dinner, going to bed, and waking up again the next morning to do it all over again. And Solomon looked at all of this and said, this is all that is done under the sun and it is vanity. It is meaningless. We saw last week that he pointed us to the reality that apart from God, truly this is life without meaning and life without joy if it is lived apart from God. But to be in Christ is to please God and is therefore to find lasting, ultimate joy that makes life worth living, that gives life purpose, that gives life meaning, that gives the daily toil meaning and purpose. So now Solomon moves into chapter 3 and verse 1. He begins, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So Solomon is now going to begin to give us an even clearer picture of this mess called life. And I want you to think, if you've ever seen uh, someone do embroidery, if you've ever seen what that looks like, on the side that they're working on, the side that will be shown, it's a beautiful image, if they're good at it. It's a beautiful picture that someone has crafted together, and it looks wonderful, but... If you turn it over, you can't discern what it is. It's loose strings and knots and curls. It's a mess. And so far, Solomon has given us a perspective of what it is to look at life on the backside of the embroidery. To live life under the sun. He says this statement 25 times through the book, Under the Sun. It is life as a de facto atheist, living as though God does not exist, or at best as a deist. God exists, but he's nowhere to be found in my daily life. This is like those that Jesus referenced in the days of Noah. Jesus said they were marrying and giving in marriage But then the end came. In other words, they were living their lives as though there was no God. And then judgment came upon them, and they knew not where it was from. It's living normally in this life, in this world, detached from reality. The reality that one day each and every one of us will stand before God and give account for our lives. It's living in temporal Material fashion, as though things are all that matters. Living under the sun, as Solomon has shown us, brings us temporary unsatisfying work, temporary unsatisfying wealth, and it leads to miserable unsatisfying cynicism. And if this is the life that you're living under the sun, then it's all about your money, it's all about your comfort, it's all about your prestige and your power and your stock portfolio. And all of these will disappoint you sooner or later. Now the alternative to that is what Solomon is now turning to. Life under heaven. Life under heaven. This is living with an eternal perspective. Living with heaven in full view. To believe Jesus when he says that you do not, your life does not consist of your possessions. To believe Paul that a Christian's citizenship is in heaven. But now we live in this world and we still battle greed, we still battle worldliness but we live lives under heaven as believers in Christ, rejecting worldly wisdom, resting in God's timing. There is a time for everything under heaven. This is God's timing. This is what Solomon is presenting us with. Now in verses 2 through 8, Solomon is... Outlining one of the most hope filled, life giving, satisfying doctrines that the Bible makes abundantly clear time and time and time again. That is, God is absolutely sovereign in His administration of times and events and the lives of all people. Now we must understand verses 2 through 8 in light of verse 10. Look again at verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So who apportions times and seasons under heaven? They are God given. The first part of verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time verse 14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. So it follows to reason, and here's where it gets uncomfortable for some, that if it's good, then God gave it. We typically don't have a problem with that part. But also, if it is travail, then God gave it also. There is a God-appointed time for everything that happens in life. Nothing happens randomly. There simply is no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as fate. Rather, our sovereign God providentially orders all affairs of his vast universe according to his inscrutable plan. So Solomon points us to the reality that God is the one who apportions our lot. And when he has done it, it is, as Solomon has written, forever. So before we get too far into the text, I think it's important that we look at providence. That we look at this great doctrine. What does this mean exactly? It's important that we make a distinction between God's sovereignty and God's providence They are very closely related, but they are a bit different. God's sovereignty describes God's absolute control over everything, always and forever. He's not dependent upon anything outside of himself. He never has been and he never will be. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. The Proverbs are closely related to this as well. But let's, let's listen to a definition of providence from our confession of faith. Chapter 5, paragraphs 1 through 3. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, By his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created according unto his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause... All things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything that befalls any by chance or without his providence. Yet by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, Yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So, this is the God of the Bible undeniably. He sits above and beyond all eternity, he sees all that ever is all at once. He doesn't see in segments, he doesn't see in pieces. He has absolute control and authority over all things, always and forever. He has never been and never will be dependent on anything or anyone outside of himself. He governs all things according to his all-wise and holy purposes. Therefore, nothing is by accident. Nothing is luck, nothing is chance. Even down, Jesus says, to the number of hairs on your head and whether or not a little bird falls to its death in the middle of the forest. Remember, Job said, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He also said, Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And the writer of Job said, in saying these things Job did not sin with his lips. Proverbs sixteen thirty three, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the dice is rolled in Las Vegas. And it is all according to God's providence how they land. God said in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Okay. I hope we're tracking with God's providence. Because this is is the important lens that we have to look through to see Ecclesiastes chapter 3 properly. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. So every activity of life has its God-appointed time and duration. God sets the times by his own sovereign will, including the beginning of each life at birth, the conclusion of each life at death, and by implication, everything that comes in between. A commentary, Trimper Longman wrote, the first two pairs, life and death, birth and death, encompass the entire life cycle. First of a human, and then of a plant. We see it's time to plant and time to pluck up. So no person or plant controls the start or finish of its existence. So we're not just looking at a list of events here that occur in life. This is a list of the things that our sovereign God in his providence sends. All of these events sent by God are integral parts of the larger master plan. The larger design of God. Remember, this is is the beauty of understanding the providence of God. When looking at all of these things, this list of things from our vantage point under the sun, everything that Solomon has pointed out is vanity. He makes that very clear to us in the first two chapters. But when we remember that it is God who has placed all things where they are now, it is by God's design that everything is as it is. Everything, Solomon assures us in verse 11, is beautiful. It's beautiful. So, in large part, this is a matter of perspective. Are we looking under the sun Or are we looking under heaven? Are we looking at the right side of the embroidery? So we understand there is a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. We do not sow in the winter and we do not harvest in the spring. Why? Because God has appointed the way that it goes. You cannot change it. Verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. Can any man say he was hit by a bullet or run through with a sword because God dozed off for a moment? And yet he who so quickly wants to relieve God of his sovereignty over killing will run to him breathlessly for healing. A time to break down and a time to build up. Solomon we saw occupied much of his time and his resources into building up. But all that he built in God's timing is sure to be broken down. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh. Our tears of grief and the occasions of our tears of grief are from God's hand. And so is the laughter. Isaiah 45, 6 and 7, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So calamity's tears and joy's laughter are both of the hand of God. Now, of course, this doctrine has a very hard edge, and more than one person has cut himself on it. But denial of this does not remove the light and darkness. It does not remove the well being and calamity, the weeping or the laughter. It just, I would argue, removes the possibility of finding any solace whatsoever. A time to mourn and a time to dance. So not surprisingly, all of this means that mourning is also an appointment of the will of God, as is the celebration of dance. Verse 5, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Sometimes we cast stones and other times we gather them. God gives them, He gives the time of demolition. He also gives the time of construction, when a building falls, whether it is by man's plan or not, the Lord has appointed the time. All construction is futile apart from God's good purpose. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. When we hold one another, we are sharing a beautiful gift of God's grace. When division occurs, we are still under his sovereign decree. Verse 6, a time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. Prosperity is a gift of God. And when financial calamity comes, be assured it too is by his hand. God allows us to store it all up and he appoints the day when we will throw it all away. The constant commotion of the stock market reveals the presumption of man better than most things in this world. We believe that we can pump it up forever and make more and more and more money, but alas, we cannot. The cycles ordained by God for everything in this fallen and silly world will come around again. And many, a millionaire, will go white in disbelief. How could this happen? Friend, look around at the world. How could it not? We must understand there is a time to keep and a time to cast away, and these times are from the hand of the Lord. Verse 7, a time to tear and a time to sew. We tear our clothes in grief and sow in restoration. Each is a gift from God. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. God enables a man to say nothing, and he gives him the appropriate words to speak. Silence and eloquence are both given by God to fulfill His purpose, to fulfill His will. Verse 8: A time to love and a time to hate, the forming of a friendship and its dissolving in a quarrel is appointed by God. Now, listen, our responsibility to avoid and mend quarrels in no way threatens the Lord's sovereignty over our obedience and our disobedience. Now we like to argue against these obvious truths because we think it threatens the holiness of God's character to say that God is over all of it. But remember, He is God. And so it does us well to hold the tension tightly a time for war and a time for peace. Even a cursory read of the Old Testament will make very clear God's sovereign decree of war and peace. Now all of this is foundational to Solomon's point that we've been looking at over the past three weeks. If there is any hope for joy, if there is any possibility for, For any pleasure in this life under the sun, it's not found under the sun at all. It's found only in God who has created it, who has ordained it, and who upholds it. So Solomon has clearly outlined an entire spectrum of all that occurs under the sovereign hand of God in the life of man under heaven. He also goes on to show not only are there times and seasons, but as we're going to see, there are purposes as well. Behind killing, behind breaking down and building up, sorrow, laughter, dancing, war, peace, all of this, behind all of it is a purpose, a deep abiding purpose of God. He gives us this as a threefold purpose in verses 9 and 10, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Okay, Solomon, what is it? What is the point of all of this? Why do we endure the ebb and flow of life? The mountains up high and the pits down low. Why is this all a part of God's plan? He gives three reasons. Verse 11, number one, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. So it is God's plan with God's vision, with His ability to see, to make everything beautiful in its time. Which means that every little step, every little sorrow, every little tear, every hurt, every joy, all works together to bring about what's beautiful in the end. One of... Every Christian's favorite verses. Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Well, how does God do that? Is he scurrying around to make the best of the messes that we create by our own volition? No. No. Certainly God can work for our good because he is constantly at work in every aspect of the universe. Now, I don't pretend that by knowing and affirming and believing this great reality in Scripture that we have the ability to see or comprehend, that we understand that this thing can be beautiful. We are on the human side of time. And I can name numerous things in my own life over the past 10 years that still today I don't understand how they're being used for my good. How they are a part of God's beautiful plan. But what alternative do I have? I know that He will. He promises it. He promises that He will do all things for good. All of this will work together in His beautiful plan. And so I have to understand that I'm, I'm just too close. I don't have God's wide-angle perspective of all things. So God tells us, trust me. I'm not the thief who has come to steal and kill. I've come to bring life. You must trust me because it is impossible for you to stand back far enough to see it all together. You're too close to the jagged glass of the window to step back and see the beauty of the picture. You're on the wrong side of the embroidery to see how beautiful the final work is. Trust me, I'm making everything beautiful in it's time. Everything. And you know what? That really gives me hope. And it helps me rest because the Lord knows if this thing was up to me, There's no standing back to see its beauty at any distance. It's all an ugly mess, and it proves to be completely useless in the end. Secondly, his purpose. He has put eternity into man's heart. In the 1950s, a missionary named Don Richardson traveled all over the world to demonstrate that people from every culture had a deep longing for God. Now, Richardson discovered that the people groups that he encountered, primitive and civilized, have partial partial knowledge of biblical truth. Well, how so? Remember, we just read this morning, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In Romans 1, Paul makes this same point. He wrote, What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We call this general revelation. That God has revealed himself in nature to all of mankind everywhere. Now this stands over and against special revelation. God's word. The importance of knowing Christ. We do not know that apart from the word of God. We do not know that apart from Christ. But we do know of God. We profoundly know God through general revelation, through nature. So, Richardson gives examples of tribes like the Karen people of Burma. They had legends of a lost book that one day the supreme God, who they called Yahweh, would send to set them free from oppression. He even describes tribal rituals that are an attempt to make atonement for their sins. For example, one day a year, the Dayaks of Borneo put their sins on a little boat and sail it down the river. That's a boat, so to speak. So Richardson proved his theory. Eternity is in the heart of every man. We are born with a longing for another world, a life with God that is beyond the reach of mortal time. And so everything Solomon has pointed us to shows why we are constantly pressing hard to find pleasure in something. Because we have eternity in our hearts, and apart from God, we do not see eternity. We do not understand eternity. And so we look at the fickle and frail things of this world to fill that longing. C.S. Lewis explains this reality beautifully. He wrote, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing. To find the place where all the beauty came from. The longing is the scent of a flower we have not yet found. The echo of a tune we have not yet heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. We inherently know we're a part of something bigger. Something we cannot completely fathom or get our heads around. But it's, it's not that easy. His third purpose in all of this. The end of verse 11. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. We can look beyond everyday occurrences and ask the meaning of them all. Eternity is in our hearts and so it is natural for us to ask ultimate questions. We have reasoning power and we give ourselves to analyzing the entire sweep of life. But unaided, we never come to the right answers. We're totally unable to see exactly what God is doing and which way he is going. This is why we never fully get beyond the why stage of life. You know what I'm talking about. If you've spent any time with like a four-year-old, why? Why? Well, because of this. Why? Well, because of this. Why? Because I told you so. (laughs) We never get beyond that. We want to ask why of everything. But we need that. We need that in our lives. We need a God that we cannot ever fully comprehend. If we could, he's not really worth worshiping, is he? We need to be stuck asking why. We need to ask why to a lot of things because it keeps pointing us back to that which is in our hearts. Eternity. Back to God. Back to the reality that it's not about us. Okay, so what do we do with all of this? We've got this huge eternal God that sits over and above all things, past, present, and future. He knows it all, and he is working it all together to bring himself glory and to bring about our good. And we long to know all of him, but we never will. So what do we do? Look at verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift. To man. There is a time and a season for everything, and God has appointed it. Those times and seasons are not set by the winds of change, but by God Almighty. And so Solomon writes You know what you should do in light of all of this? Enjoy life. Eat and drink and enjoy, because all that you are is in the hand of an eternal God who sees the beauty through the mess enjoy life. Enjoy life. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. God is working out human history. He's got a plan. God knows you. He made you. God has set all the seasons of life and this should produce within us a healthy fear of Him. We should revere Him. This is, according to Proverbs 1, the way of wisdom. And within this, what you realize is when I live in rhythm with God and I live out of love for God and faith in God, I actually enjoy my life despite my circumstances. And then there's this ease, there's an orderliness, there's a purpose to my existence, and even when things are painful and tough, I see that God is in the midst of it. So Solomon reminds us, respect God. Don't try and carve out your own existence and fight against the rhythm of creation. Don't try... And have sex outside of your marriage. Don't turn your feasting into gluttony. Don't turn your drinking into drunkenness. Don't turn your humor into coarse joking. Live and work in rhythm and in conjunction with God who has made you. And your life will flow in his time and in his way. And you'll be happy and satisfied. And he will give you that gift of satisfaction. here's the key. Whatever has already been and what will be has been before. That's what he says. There's a rhythm in life. There are people that have gone before us and they've made the same mistakes that we'll make. They've learned the same lessons that we need to learn. And here's the beauty of it all. Verse 15. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away now remember last week we looked at the reality that each and every one of us is going to die much sooner than we think and god is going to call our name as he did lazarus and he's going to call you out of your tomb and you will stand before him hebrews nine twenty seven says it's appointed once for a man to die and then judgment And you will stand before God and He will take your life and He will bring it to account. It will be as if He took your life and played it on a film. All these things that you did when you thought no one was looking, but God was. All the things you did and you were never caught for. Your all-knowing God brings them up and He brings your life into account. Is that going to be a good day? Is it possible that that could be a good day for any of us? That could be a beautiful day. For those of you who don't know Christ, I will tell you this. You will see all of your sin, and that is all. And then you will see God declare war on you, and you will never have peace. You will enter hell without him forever. But for those of you who are friends with God through Jesus Christ, will that be a good day? That'll be a great day. 1 John, John tells us that we will stand before the Lord with confidence. We'll not be hiding. We'll not be seeking to mask our sin. It will be evident. It will be clear. And we will stand there with confidence. The sin that we see as God brings it into account, we will look at and we will say, I know that Jesus Christ has died for all of it. I am that loved. I am that forgiven. It will, for the believer, be a great day. That's what Solomon's teaching us. Beginning with the end in mind. I'm going to die and stand before God and my whole life is going to play like a film. What will it look like? I want us to live with Christ. I want you to die with Christ. I want you to rise with Christ. And he brings it all to account. I want you to celebrate with Christ. Christ has gone before you. Confess your sin. Follow him. And if you do it, until you die, no matter the circumstances... You get the pleasure of enjoying life in Christ. Rejoice, do good, eat your bread, drink your wine, believe in the sovereign God, and enjoy the inscrutable repetitions of life. This is his gift. This is what Solomon points us to. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in knowing that the seasons and times of this life are not random. They don't come and go with the blowing of the wind. They do not come and go with the uninterrupted actions of men. They do not come and go simply by our own volition. But they come and go according to your divine providence. Father, what hope you have given us by revealing yourself to us in Scripture. That you are an all-wise, all-powerful, all-purpose-filled God. who has given us reason for hope, who has given us reason for joy, who has given us reason to rejoice in every circumstance of life. That when trials come in our life, that we can look at them and say, Rejoice. That we can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Because in our hearts we long for eternity. And by your grace and for your glory, you have shown us what eternity is. Life with Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater desire for Christ, that you would give us more of Christ, that you would fill us with a greater desire to love Christ, to follow Christ, to live for Christ. Because nothing else in this life matters apart from Christ. Our life will end soon. Help us, O Lord, to realize that only what is done for Christ will last, will be sustained, will give us any true pleasure. Thank you, God, for giving us your word For allowing us the opportunity to feast on the reality of your sovereignty, of your providence, of your goodness, of your grace, and of your care for your people, even when we don't understand. Help us to remember, Lord, in the midst of our calamity, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, that we're simply standing too close Help us to remember that you are a God who sees and knows all things and not only watches them, but is in control over them. Help us to see life not under the sun, but under heaven. Help us to trust you, to rest in you, to abide in you, to taste and see that the Lord indeed is good. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.